Next question I got for you is, has a parent ever ruined a or their player's chance to be recruited by you? Yes. <laughs> the short answer is yes. Um, I think, you know, there is, again, we go back to the, the leading and the guiding. Uh, you know, we've we've had times where parents have led the process and and I think that's okay at the start you know because again parents are you know they're trying to you know I'm a parent and you know you're trying to as they like to say there's no there's no manual that comes with them right the children so you're trying to figure things out so you know sometimes they're leading the process and and they can be you know they can be maybe leading it in the wrong direction uh, but where where we've been able to save those is you know, being able to try and transform that recruiting process into them guiding and the student leading. And in those cases, we've been able to be very successful and, and have great relationships with all these people and and see their kids go on to have great careers. In the cases where the parents have pretty much dominated, you know, from front to back, and it has caused, it's almost oppressed the student athlete. You know, you don't, you can't figure out who they are. Uh, because the parent is always answering the questions. Um, and you can see the student athlete kind of, you know, maybe maybe wanting to, uh, but, it, but they just can't. They can't represent themselves. And again, it's not, you know, it's not a knock on parents or on the student athlete, but you have to remember, go back to the bus ride example. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend four hours on the bus with your son or your daughter. I'm not going to spend four hours on the bus with you. So, I need to know who you are because it helps me tell helps tell me how you raised your child. But I, I really need to know who they are. I need to know if, if those things came through and if if they're going to fit into my philosophy. I mean, there won't be a parent that plays a minute for me. Right. So <laughs> if, the, if the parent fits my core values, that's huge, uh, because that means that there's there's a, a likelihood that their their student might or their their child might but then i need to be able to identify if indeed the child does meet those core values and for that to happen i need to be able to talk to them openly and then be able to answer yeah 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 well i that's why i wanted to ask the question because especially in youth soccer there's definitely cases where you have overbearing parents and um they'll you'll even hear them on the sidelines like i've gone to plenty of games and you'll hear parents you know joystick coaching their kids and um, it's it's funny to me because they're people with no football background. They, they don't even understand the game. Yet they're trying to tell their kid what to do. Open here, move here, kick the ball, send it, boot it. And it's like, you know, you, you don't know anything. Just watch and enjoy. Let let the guy that's across the field that's supposed to be the coach do his job um, and provide the instruction. The other question I wanted to ask you real quick is... Let me, let me say something on that real quick. Because you, you just brought out something that, that I should have talked about earlier when we talk about the, the, the parent involvement at the college level. So you, you bring out a great point because what we don't need is if I'm trying to teach the team to play in a specific way or a player to play a specific position in a specific way, I don't need somebody else uh, communicating a different message. Uh, you know, you can imagine how confusing that might be for, for uh, you know, an 18-year-old. So the parent then goes, well, what if I don't like the way that it's being done? Well, see, this is where I think that then then maybe either communication between me and the parents and the student athlete, you know, is, is welcome. Uh, I do think dialogue there is valuable uh, because I, I've, I've had, and this is sparing, but I've had parents, very rarely, but I've had parents brave enough to 
you know, to contact me and say, listen, you know, I think that, you know, this is the way that, you know, he played the seven position growing up. So it, it might serve him better to, to play that way now. And, you know, I might respond, you know, kindly that, you know, it's not the direction that I'd like to see, you know, him or her move or the team move in and, you know, if it's a problem for them, then, you know, after some dialogue, we might, we might both agree that, you know, maybe it is best to, to move them on. But, you know, that would be evidence of not doing the right job on the front end. All of those things should have been fleshed out in the recruiting process. My expectations for positions and things like that, that should have been, that should have been a fleshed out style of play should have been fleshed out in the recruiting process. So, and, and most of the time it's not me making the mistake. Uh, I do this for a living. So I, I go through the recruiting process all the time. Uh, if the parent you know, only goes through it once and forgets to write down what I said about how we play or how the number seven plays or what the expectation is of their son or daughter, then you know, I, I won't be faulted for that. But uh, that, that stuff has to be done right on the front end. Right, right. Well, let me, let me ask you this on, on that note. When it comes to the actual game, when, when your team's playing, how often are you on the sideline – Speaking. Rarely. Very, very rarely. So, you know, again, that goes to the point that you made. Uh, You know, you might have a parent, you know, sometimes parents don't have, maybe don't have the knowledge that the coach has in the game. Um, And that might happen a lot. So, you know, it's kind of a a weird dynamic for them to be screaming instruction from the stands. But uh, the the other weird dynamic about it is, well, what if you have a parent, again, who, who has a great amount of knowledge? You know, I mean, what if you've got, <laughs> what if you've got a Rigo Saki, you know, the former uh, Italy manager who, who's, you know, a genius in many ways uh, in the stands trying to coach their grandson. Well, well then what? Well, again, you have to, you have to go back to why is it that I'm not joysticking from the sideline or why I shouldn't be joysticking from the sideline. If I've done my job in training, then, then they know they're prepared. They know what to do. They know what we're looking for. They know what we're expecting. And yes, there might be some adjustments that need to be made. There might be some on-the-fly things that we might be able to to impact. But the work should have been done during the week. And then when we get to Saturday, it's it's time to go and do what we've been training for for three days. Right, right. Well, and I'm sure too the pregame instruction that you give. You know, whatever it's a set piece or a reminder of you know your defensive blocks or things like that. Um, because that, that's one of the things that we deal with a lot at the youth level, and I'll see it when I'm going out and I'm, and I'm observing or if, if I'm physically coaching, is I, I've actually had somebody come and ask me or tell me, rather, hey, you weren't coaching today. And I'm sitting there going, what do you mean I wasn't coaching? I'm like, this is the game. I don't need to say anything. I've already given all my instructions. Like, I give when – I, when I coach my teams, I give a pregame report, um, kind of similar to what you guys, I'm sure, do at the college level where you literally, you know, you go to the locker room, you walk in, and you say, hey, this is what we're doing – these are the roles of everybody, so on and so forth, or maybe you do it during the week. And I do the same thing. I give the, the kids and their parent a sheet, and I say, and I, I email it out. Hey, here's what you're gonna your kid's role is if they're in this position, um, so on and so forth. So I say, I try and be quiet the entire time the game's playing. But I've actually had somebody come up and say, well, you're not coaching. So it's interesting to see from your perspective. Yeah, the, you know, and I think, I don't again, I don't know. Some of it is a lack of education of what a coach in their job is um (laughs) so you know there's that and then some of it is our sports world today you know when you've got you know the the most famous 
great football coaches who are railing from the sidelines about things that need to be done and stuff like that. Uh, you know, maybe that that's parents think that that's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, but soccer is a different game. And I would point people to hockey. You know, I'm not a hockey expert. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but I've watched a lot of hockey. I'm a, I'm a Penguins fan. I like the Penguins. And I like watching them play. And I don't see the coaches in, in hockey running up and down, uh, trying to, you know, scream at their players and tell them what to do. Uh, it seems like there's a pretty set, you know, there's a pretty set rotation there. I mean, everything is planned. And then it's about going and executing. That's the way it should be. And that's the way – and parents have to understand, too. Let me make this clear. That's It's not only the most effective way, but it's the most enjoyable way to experience the game for a player is when you you know going into the game what your role is as an individual and what your team's role is and then it's time to execute and i don't have anybody you know telling me mixed messages or telling me you know to turn in a way that i've never practiced before i don't have any of that during the game i just go out and execute what what i was taught and enjoy those moments it's the most not just effective but the most enjoyable way to experience the game so obviously you're in the NAIA um, and there's multiple different divisions and levels of college. Can you kind of explain real quick what are the biggest differences of college divisions and their processes? I think the biggest division or the biggest difference in the college divisions is is money. And when I say money, uh, it's the amount of sports they sponsor and and the application fee it is to be in said division. So if you want to be a Division One school, uh, it's 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 not just about you know, uh, I guess how, how many scholarships they put in a sport. It's about how many sports they actually sponsor. You have to sponsor or ha- have in your athletic uh, athletics uh, uh, in your athletics uh, department a certain amount of sports. So you have to offer, you know, maybe crew and wrestling and et cetera, et cetera, football, baseball, all the other ones that we normally see. If you go into to Division Two, you don't have to offer as many sports, or in other words, sponsor as many sports. It's the same thing with staff. At Division One level, there has to be a certain amount of staff that you employ. At the Division Two level, there's a little a little less amount of staff that you have to employ. And of course, the application to go Division One, Division Two, Division Three, they all have different prices and different requirements. So, it's it's not so much. I think people think that. I mean, there is more money in division one sports but i think that that people think that you know well if i go division one i'm going to get a bigger scholarship well that definitely uh could be not true (laughs) there are loads of of division ones uh that are not funding their programs uh, at a really high level there are lots of division twos uh that do and lots of division twos that don't there are lots of naias that that do and lots of naias that don't so you know, what's, t- what's typical is, yeah, if you're going to go play Division One football, then yes, it's going to be funded to the guilds. Uh, if you're going to go play Division One soccer, well, maybe not. You know, the money's in football. <laughs> so that's where that's where they make money, and that's where they're going to spend their money. So they just have to have a soccer team in order to be a Division One program. They have to sponsor all of these sports. So, I mean, there's actually more in terms of per sport or per soccer there's actually more money in the NAIA per soccer than there would be in Division One per per institution. Division One, I, I think, is allowed 9.6 scholarships yeah. uh, per institution, uh, and Division Two is the same. Well, NAIA is allowed up to 12 so- soccer scholarships to offer. Oh, well, so you might have a better chance of getting more money at the NAIA level than you do at the Division One level. 
How good does a player have to be in order to receive a full athletic scholarship? Yeah, that is such a that is such a strange question, <laughs> um, and it's strange because you know not only does it not happen very often, but the the circumstance for that to happen is so different from what people think. People think that if you're a great player, you deserve a full scholarship. I mean, and you have I don't just mean you know any any you know, John Doe uh, thinks that I'm, you have some of the club coaches at, at the highest level that think that, and that's not always true. So we'll give some examples to try and help capture this for the audience to understand. If you, if you have a, let's say you're, you're, you have division one offers. So there's 11 that are on the field at any time in soccer. Well, division one only offers 9.6 scholarships. So already they're starting from a position where they're behind the eight ball in terms of recruiting. So even if Division One wanted to offer 11 of their starters a full athletic soccer scholarship, they wouldn't be able to. At best, they could give 9.6 of them, <laughs> split a kid in half, and you know, and do it that way. That that'd be the best that they could do. So you're already looking at you know coaches are. are going to be interested in what kind of academic money does this student athlete get so that maybe if they're if they're really that good i can get them here on some academic money and some athletic money and maybe there's some grants uh, that the student might qualify for some some grants within the school some state grants etc and they're putting together a package to try and get this kid the most money that they can so let's look at the nai level because I told you earlier that there's up to 12 scholarships. So there you could. You could offer your starting 11 a full scholarship apiece and then one kid on the bench a, a scholarship. So how good do you have to be to receive a full scholarship at the NAI level? Well, a full, a full soccer scholarship was the question that you asked. The, the student athletes that I've seen receive a full soccer scholarship at the NAI level and the only ones that I've seen receive a full soccer scholarship at the NAI level have been national team players from other countries. Mm. Costa Rican national team, Brazilian youth national team, you know, second division Brazilian pro player, etc. Those are the only, the only players that I've seen. Yeah. Here you go. You know, uh, there, there's a college that was made to the semifinals in the NAI national tournament this year and their entire starting 11 had a full scholarship, so they had 12 scholarships. They were able to offer their entire starting 11, one scholarship apiece for each player, and then they used the remaining scholarship divide and divided it amongst their bench. Those are, again, those are the elite national team foreign player. Mm-hmm. So for for a, you know, can a domestic player get a full soccer scholarship? Uh, well, sure. It's have to be very, very, very good. Yeah. Um, but again, even when you're looking at Division One or Division Two, they're already starting behind in terms of how am I going to build? How am I going to build a competitive roster if I give if I give Kyle because Kyle's just that good? If I give Kyle and he says I have no money, Coach, I have to have full scholarship, and my grades aren't good enough to get me academic money or anything else. So if Kyle's that good and my school costs 35 grand and I give him that full scholarship, well, how am I going to put a team around Kyle that's competitive, that's going to compete on the pitch, and that's going to want to make Kyle stay 
because he's going to be here for a year and say, man, these other kids around me are terrible. And I'm going to say, yeah, because I gave all the money to you. Because <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have the grades to qualify for anything else. Right. Right. So are you that good to to take my whole team to a conference title or a national title? Well, let me tell you. I mean, in soccer, there, there's not that's not the way it works. You know, there aren't quarterbacks. Uh, there aren't pitchers. Uh, there aren't, you know, big centers or amazing point guards. It's not the way it works. This, this is 11 people having to coordinate together. It's very, very, very different dynamic. So then, just real quickly, how many full scholarships or full athletic scholarships have you given during your uh, time as a college coach? How many full scholarships have I given yeah, as from soccer? Athletic. Yeah, as uh, full None. athletic. Zero. Zero, well. And it's been, what, eight years? Yeah. Wow. wow, wow, wow. So I just hope that sets the expectation for everybody in terms of um, you're not getting one, right? Or it's going to yeah, be a 1% chance or something smaller than that, I guess. Right, and it, and it's not that you can't get a full scholarship, but it's what kind of what, what are we talking about? So have we had players between academic money, between grant money, and between soccer money not pay any money? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we, we try and do that as often as we can. We try and take advantage of, of these other, you know, what are their academics like? What are the grants available for, for the student athlete? We try and take advantage of those things the best that we can. And that way we can use our athletic money as sparing as possible to field multiple amounts of good players. Right. So now the experience is better for everybody. Right, right, right. Um, but, you know, exclusively just for soccer. Yeah, there, there are some schools. There are some schools that do that. But again, I mean... You know, I don't want to name names, but there are schools that, I mean, you just got, you have top international prospects who are either have signed professional contracts or have trained their whole life in a professional, you know, the, the Sevilla Academy in Spain or something like that. I mean, you're talking just a different tier of, of soccer player. Right. And they're able to get that full ride from athletic right. catcher. So let me ask you this, right? So since we're talking about that now, um, I watched UCF play a year ago, and um, when they announced their starting 11, the entire team was international. And so I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that. Is that typical across the board for colleges now? Are they, are they moving to more international, or is that just kind of like a, a one-off thing? Yeah, it's definitely becoming the norm. Schools are are looking more and more and more to recruit. International agencies are becoming more sophisticated and more intentional on on recruiting. You know, the big the big thing to do overseas is you know if if you get a contract at sixteen, seventeen, or eighteen, then you know a professional contract, then that's what you do. Uh, you play and until you know either you can't or you know until you get cut. But you know here, obviously, that's not the it, it works differently. So for a long time. Uh, it wasn't as typical to recruit that international, but what's happened is the, the meta has really changed overseas, and it's become listen. If you don't, if you don't get this professional contract by the time you're 16 or 17, the likelihood of you getting it, of course, as we all know, is, is probably very small. Right. But what you can do is you can go overseas, you can go to the Mer- America, get a great education, and and play there, and then maybe you're good enough because of your training here to play in, in some of their professional leagues because they're not quite as as advanced yet, you know, not all of them, 
uh, as maybe some of the professional leagues in, in other countries and European countries in particular. So, you know, uh, recruiting agencies have become more sophisticated in holding showcases. So it's a big, big, big thing for Division One, Division Two, uh, and even NAI for there to be showcases in Scandinavia, showcases in England, showcases in Germany, and they put them weeks apart from each other to where basically over the winter holiday as a college coach you can go to england you can go to germany and you can go to scandinavia and see three or four different showcases all within you know two and a half weeks and see hundreds and hundreds hundreds of players wow and and just recruit them and by the way they're willing to pay so you know there's two there's two sides to this i think um, not, you know, the coach feels like they're getting a more mature, more prepared player from overseas. Uh, and they're getting a more committed player who's not just going to transfer <laughs> maybe after, after a year, because that's kind of what they've been told to do is just leave their club, their youth club, uh, like they are here in some cases. Um, but, but there's also the aspect of a lot of these European players, they under, they, they appreciate the value of an education. Because it's it's not because the meta is different over there. You have to remember that again. If if you don't turn pro when you're 18, you know, in many cases years ago, it was well maybe you go get a job, you know, doing something uh, overseas. But maybe you just go get a job and work. Right. And in the United States, it's been you know this big push to go to school. Well, so the value of an education for them is is a huge thing because that's different here. It's almost. It's almost expected or natural. that, you know, yeah, it's a natural thing to do. So in one sense, that's a good thing because maybe more kids are going to college. But in another sense, it's a bad thing because they're thinking, well, it's a natural thing to do. And I'm a good player, so you should pay for my college tuition. When these European kids are looking at it, and they're more eager and they're going, you know what? Yeah, I'll pay 10 grand a year. Right, 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 right. No problem. So then let me ask you this, right? So do you see it as maybe the American, in your eyes, is the American player maybe not as good or not as prepared? Or is it just easier and easier now to bring in international players that maybe have a little bit higher level, a little bit more experience? Well, you know, it's, it's difficult to speak in generalities, but I'll, but I'll try and speak in generalities. I think generally speaking, yes, I think that the, the international player in, in, in many cases is more prepared to deal with the the college game not in all cases but in many cases uh, i think they're more prepared uh, to deal with it at the age of you know 18 or again a lot of these international players that are coming over especially in nai and division two you know you're 22 23 24 years old so then they're, they're definitely more mature uh and more prepared than your 18 year old uh domestic student athlete so you know, we really have to be we, – we like to recruit domestically. Uh, we think that that's a great thing is to offer our students here uh, a chance to, to you know, go to, go to college and play uh, in, their, in their home country. So, you know, but that's hugely reliant on, on people like you and, and other coaches to, you know, to prepare them for what's coming. So last question for you to tie this all together. Um, when you have players coming in, whether they're new or they've been there for you uh, for a year or two years, um, what is your expectations? Like, what do you set at the beginning of the year when you come in for that first meeting, or maybe it's preseason before that? What what is the expectation? So the 
you know, in terms of specific goals, we like to have, you know, a discussion, dialogue with student-athletes, really setting kind of the specific goals that they want to obtain. But our our overarching expectation and goals are, like I said earlier, to, to meet the to meet the four core values that we have and ultimately to to do the best that we can at everything that we do every day, the competitive greatness core value. I don't set specific metrics of, you know, we need to make the conference tournament or we need to make the national tournament or anything like that. Uh, and I'm okay with, with the team kind of coming up with those, those goals. I want the team to come up with goals. I want them to have, uh, to, to have, you know, vested interest in what we're trying to accomplish, but I'm a firm believer and it seems to be have, have played out pretty well uh, in my career as a coach so far that as long as we're, giving our best in everything that we're doing every single day and every single moment of every single day, the achievements will come. We will win games. We will qualify for tournaments. We'll win awards. We'll do all those things as long as our mindset is on giving our best every single day. So it's a lot more, it's a lot more focused on, on that than it is uh, some type of specific extrinsic, extrinsic uh, motivator. Gotcha. So you wanted to be more internally involved versus hey we need to try and win the national tournament or the conference or anything like that i think it has to be and not everybody agrees with that and that's fine but for me there there has to be there has to just be a desire to want to be the best right and you know i think that encompasses all of those things so i think it's a one size fit all i think it catches everything i mean if you want to be the best center back that you can be doesn't that mean that if, you, if I've done my job in recruiting you and you've done your job in training, doesn't that mean you're going to compete uh, to be one of the best center backs in the conference? Sure. If you're one of the best center backs in the conference, then does that mean we're probably going to compete for a conference title? Yeah, probably. If we're going to compete for a conference title, does that mean that there's a likelihood that we're going to make the national tournament? Well, yes. So right. it just, it just tic tac, it just all falls right in order right after one another. But it starts with, you know, how, how great do we really want to be? Right, right, right. We want to be the best, you know, and, and, you know, what does that mean? And, and you start to define what the best means. And ultimately that means, well, everything that we do, even this conversation, we're just going to give our best effort and where we end up, we end up. Last question for you. And this really is the last one. Um, how difficult or easy is it for a player to go from college to become a professional? And then maybe what's a potential pathway? Extremely difficult. That's the short answer. I think the statistic is uh, 0.9% will will play at the professional level. So that's a really, really small number. Um, and when you think about, you know, what that takes, it takes a lot of things. And we don't necessarily have the time to, to dive into, you know, what that is. I, I think that's probably a dedicated conversation to itself <laughs> that we can have a, another time. But, uh, you know, what in terms of pathway, you know, probably the best pathway at this point, you know, obviously college is, is a useful pathway. Uh, I think the USL2 in the summer, uh, which I'm coaching the Dalton Red Wolves in the USL2, uh, is one of the greatest pathways to going uh, pro. I think there's a statistic that it's, it's somewhere around uh, between 70 and 80%, I think, of players that have been in the MLS draft have played in the USL2 at some point in their career. Well, so it is a well-scouted uh, summer summer league. That's a very competitive summer league. The top players in the college system will compete in that summer league. 
uh, every year. So that's that is a potential pathway. And uh, in terms of you know what the individual has to do, you know again that's probably uh, we could probably dedicate an entire twenty minute segment to to that, and maybe we should sometime. That would be a fun one to do in the future. So I, I appreciate that insight, though, because it's, you know, a lot of people think that it's easy or that their their kid can do it or the kid thinks they can do it. And and there's no, you can't tell somebody that they can't, but they just need to be open and, and mindful to the fact that uh, it's a lot harder than it looks or than it, it seems to sound because people like to paint a picture that, you know, we now have the best platform in the world to develop players or what other circumstances are. And it's not always as simple as that. And uh, it never has and never will be. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. And I, and I think that, you know, and maybe it would be fun to have, you know, Mitchell on that call, that call as well. Uh, but I think one of the first one of the first questions that I ask a player when they say, Coach, I want to play pro, uh, I always ask them, you know, what do you want more? Do you want, you want to eat or do you want to play pro? And, you know, they're kind of taken back and say, well, I mean, what do you mean? Why, why would that matter? <laughs> oh, I'm just, I'm just curious because I mean, if you took a, if you took a contract for 900 bucks a month, which is a pretty typical, you know, pretty typical contract for trying to break into uh, the pro game, well, you're going to need another job or else you're going to go hungry. Yep. So, you know, what, what are you willing to, you know, what are you really willing to give up <laughs> to, right. to, to make this happen? Um, you know, and that's when, that, that, that's kind of the start of the dialogue uh, from there. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're enjoying the podcast and finding valuable information from it. Now, I do have a quick ask of you, and that would be to make sure to follow me on all social media platforms like Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, which is at Kyle C. Wilson Official, and on Twitter, which is the Kyle C. Wilson. And if you could help me do that, that would continue to help reinforce the ideas that I want to continue producing content specifically made for you guys to help educate you. And as always, you know I'm there to help as I have $23,195 worth of content available for free through my YouTube channel that will answer and help a lot of the problems that you're going through, or at least your child's going through. So if you haven't found that yet, go to the YouTube channel, Kyle C. Wilson Official. And without further ado, let's get back into the episode.